I know what you're thinking. Hang on, where's the Data Brilliant music? And that usual intro? Well, today we're changing things up, because this is a very special episode. Just listen to this beautiful music. This is the sound of Data Brilliance. This is Grammy Award winner Imogen Heap creating music before our ears. Her improvisation is enabled by data and innovation. A brand new instrument which Imogen created herself. Enabling her to reshape and redesign how she composes and performs. Giving audiences a fresh perspective on what it is to compose, to perform, to redesign music. This is Joe Dos Santos. Grab some decent headphones, sit back, and listen to this incredible exclusive track composed just for us. Wasn't that something? Keep listening to find out how Imogen created it and how it was made possible by data. Welcome to Data Brilliant Imogen. Hello. Thank you. What a glorious uh, introduction. Now I've got to step up, haven't I? So thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I think your deeds came well before you. You're all set here. Um, so you have described yourself as a person who is at your core just a person who loves technology and loves music. How did that happen? Which came first and how did you get into each? Um, I suppose in a way they came together because I had a piano at home, a grand piano, and it was also a player piano. So it had a role that played the, you know, the dots um, and the keys would go down. So in a way, that was my introduction. Little did I know it, kind of like MIDI, you know, the language that music uh, instruments, digital instruments talk to each other. So Mm. really, it was the it was the piano. Um, And then when I was 12, I got introduced to an Atari computer in a cupboard because I wasn't very, I didn't really get on with my music teacher. So he used to send me into this cupboard like as a kind of form of punishment. Um, But actually, secretly, I loved it. And he kind of probably knew I loved it. Um, So that's where I learned how to do programming, um, you know, off a one of these early sequencing softwares um and I guess my love has just continued on in parallel um just it helps me do what I need to do you know that's what great technology does isn't it kind of extends the self um and feels kind of fluid like a you know um like a second skin I'm picturing you locked away like Harry Potter under the cupboard, uh, and uh, we'll come full circle to that as we get through the interview. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you, you, you are every bit as much of a producer 
as you are as a song creator. And um, it occurred to me as you were talking about programming that that so much of what you do is actually not just the listening to and playing back of sounds, but the production of sound and, and the computer, using the computer to actually create a synthesized version of something or to augment that. How do you think about technology in the context of the music that you're creating? Um, it's very... It, it's completely fully integrated. It's like I'll record a, a voice and um, I'll just quickly reverse it, slap some reverb on it, all done inside the box. Uh, I might chop it up, you know, like edit it like you would a film um, and then chuck some blocks together, create a beat out of that, um, whack a, you know, open up a synth, kind of modulate some um, some filters or whatever. And uh, that would, yeah, it just it's just all together. It's There's no... There's no one thing or another anymore. It's just all very much part and parcel, the same flow. And um, yeah, I think over the years, just it's been it's got so easy to make music, uh, really like massively dense sessions um, with a home studio. Whereas in the beginning, I did use tape and you know had like limited amounts of tracks, like twenty four track or forty eight track. Um, you know, mixing desk, and we would all be like, we didn't have an automated one in the beginning, so we'd there'd be like four people across the across the desk like going right I'm going right now bring in the vocals okay right you pull up this filter whatever it might be um but I've always liked really dense uh production like really um kind of ear candy production Hmm. and so you in some respects have blurred the line in uh between what's live and what is recorded right you're actually almost doing um some studio production on stage. I remember some of your earlier productions. I watched them and you would sing a song and then go back to the keyboard and you're actually having the, you're synthesizing the actual songs. What was important to you about what was live and what was actually recorded beforehand? And I think you and I had talked about, you know, some of the early 90s bands like Erasure and and Yaz or Yazoo would actually fully record the soundtrack and then the performance would be their voice. But I think that you've been thinking a little bit more about that being more authentic if you're performing the music live too. I wonder if you could walk us through your thought process there. Yeah, again, as technologies become more available and cheaper, um, in the beginning, I would use what was available. So that might be like a four-track looper. So I'd do what I could with a four-track looper. Um, and I'd have, you know, maybe a laptop. But again, what I could do with the memory of that laptop at that time or the CPU. Um, so but as it's got much bigger, your options are super open. So um, I guess I like a combination of real people on stage um, and lots of kind of augmenting of their sound, um, kind of putting them through the wrangler, the audio wrangler, um, whether that's... You know, as we talked, you, you mentioned earlier, gest, gest, uh, gesturally with my gloves, um, which maybe we'll talk about later, um, or whether it's just, you know, singing a nice vocal line, um, playing the piano. I mean, I love playing the piano and singing. Um, I really, really enjoy that. But I do miss the, the reverbs and the harmonizers and all the kind of the, the textured vocals. That's kind of my thing. Um, and I'm not the world's greatest singer either. Um, so I kind of like to. Um, it's not like auto-tuned particularly, but I just like the um, the depth and range that you could get from the production to kind of add into my dry vocal sound. Um, so, yeah, I've just, I've always, um, I don't know, I've, I've tried over the years to, to make my setup as simple as possible. But again, what was off the shelf uh, available 
was not that much. And so I ended up having all these kind of tangled web of controllers all over the stage to try and create that kind of studio feel where you'd have densely produced tracks and loads of different variety coming in. Like from one section, it might sound like, you know, there's a kind of marching band. And then the next section, it might sound like there's a big string orchestra. Obviously, you can't do that unless you're like, you know, hugely famous and you can have 100 people on stage with you. So we have to make do. Um, But again, you know, through sample instruments that you can use, there's some really fantastic um, virtual instruments that you can just play and and it sounds pretty good. Um, But also there is a difference, you know, in the beginning, I was really trying to recreate the studio sound, um, which which was really hard because you can't you can't do what you do in the studio on stage. But what you can do is a new interpretation that is you know, just as kind of evocative and exciting or, uh, you know, whatever you want to to bring with that song. Um, it doesn't have to be a carbon copy. It can never be. It'll always be worse um, than the studio. So actually they do have different lives, but it does have the, the kind of feel of the studio vibe, I suppose. And I think that you have just alluded to the gloves, which feel like they were a way for you to be a little bit more evocative, uh, <laughs> that you could actually start to move around the stage as a move as opposed to move back to your keyboard, right? Um, and I, my understanding is that you've brought those gloves with us with you today. I wonder if you could mm-hmm. um, explain to us a little bit about the Mimu gloves and uh, how they work. Yeah, I will. I'll st- before I take them on, I'll just kind of describe why, really, because I've mentioned about all of these millions of um, bits of technology, kind of cubes on the floor or buttons or to be able to record as I went. Um, but it was never fully free. I was always tethered back to kind of, you know, base station, which is like this barricade of equipment to just simply record my voice. I would have to go back and press record. Um, and I just always felt like I was disengaging from the audience, even though it was maybe fun to watch like this crazy mad woman just like pressing a million buttons, kind of looking like a, an operator. Um, it it never really felt like um, the performance that I wanted to give, which was, you know, sing my heart out and really engage with the audience and have my eyes, you know, looking at their eyes rather than looking down at the screen or whatever. Um, so that's really why I wanted to develop them. Um, and I got a really amazing team of people together over the years to, to put it together. And now we have these really awesome gloves. So, yeah, I'm going to stick them on um, and try and explain what they do. So... Basically, on my right hand, I have a glove. And on the left hand, I have a glove. (laughs) So I have different postures. And the ones I use the most are fist, open hand, one finger point, secret finger, which is like turning on a light switch, puppet hand, which is kind of like, you know, making a little puppet sound, uh, kind of, you know. And then T finger um, and rock sign. And I've got them on both hands. And then I've got movements, which is like up and down, which we call pitch, left and right, which we call yaw, and kind of twisting your hand, which we call roll. And then I've got accelerometer peaks if I want to, you know, confirm an action sometimes um, without accidentally doing it or playing the drums or something like that. Um, and then I've got combinations of, so I can have one finger point plus, um, you know, pitch. So, for example, I could do one finger point and I'll do pitch. So then I'll go, ooh, here my voice becomes a little bit like phasey. So I've brought in my doubler like that. And if I did it with my left hand, um, you would hear that my voice gets really really low um yeah so there we go um and now if i if i do secret finger um to the out to the right from my navel out to the far right then you'll hear a big long reverb there we go back to the navel and now if i wanted to reverse my voice um i just close my right fist 
There we go. Um, so if I didn't like, this is my favourite combination, which is just basically long reverb and then close the fist and have a nice backwards reverb. Um, so what else have I got? I've got loops. So on my left hand, I use my, um, I close my fist um, to create a loop. Um, and it just, the first loop just is created by however long that period of time is. And then when you open your hand, um, that creates a loop. So here we go. One, two, three, four. One, two, so there we go. three, four. I've got a nice delay on it there. So if I move my hand to the left and I do the flick of the wrist, I can make that loop twice as long. And I can also do, I can also do that with the right hand. So I'm going to add another loop. So I've got a new loop now by pressing a button on my right hand and creating a whole new section of loops. Okay, begin. slowly lowering my hand down to, and then deleting it just by kind of going past a certain point and then I can get rid of that other loop um, by doing the same. So I'm going down, 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 and then deleting past the loop. For people that haven't seen this live, I really recommend that you uh, Google it or watch on YouTube. It's really quite something to watch uh, the expressions. And I think, Imogen, one of the things you have said repeatedly is they feel natural, like you're doing things that feel natural with the gloves, um, as opposed to, you know, trying to do something artificial. Is that is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I mean, it's probably sounded a bit like I was doing these really awkward moves. And, you know, why would you want to watch somebody like moving their arm up and down like a robot? But it isn't like that. I mean, you are literally going from zero to, you know, 127, like up, down. But when you're actually moving, you don't do it in a straight line. You kind of, you know, you're moving your arms around like you do in the real world. If you're talking like, right, I'm now doing, um, moving my arms around, which you can't see. But it's everybody has their, their different way, you know, their different way that they gesticulate. And um, it's... It feels very natural. Um, if you want to make something bigger, you put your arm up. If you want to make something quieter, you put your arm down. You know, if you want to open up something so it sounds more, then you would do that by, you know, opening your wrist up. So you're kind of turning something. It just feels very second nature. Um, and, but nothing is pre-described. You completely descri- you, you completely choose what postures you want and how you want the actions to be. So for me, these these feel very natural and for many other people some you know use Hmm. the same gestures or maybe the same movements um and i think we will start to see you know gestural language emerge uh, across all of our different devices and um you know vr and ar and all that stuff uh and it it just feels very natural yeah so actually doesn't it in a way kind of doesn't look impressive um it it just looks like how it should right and that's the point yeah and yet, what's your vision for the use of the gloves? So I have I have seen um, 
uh, a young Miss Ariana Grande. Use them mm-hmm. on stage. I've seen some mm-hmm. other things. Throw that in there. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, name dropping. You know, people that Imogen Heap hangs out with. No big deal. Um, so what is your vision that these things become part of a uh, a normal production set? Or is it something that you think is going to be limited to people who deal with uh, kind of a electronic styles of music? Or what's your vision for, what's your wildest fantasy for the Mew Mew Glove? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't have like huge aspirations, really. It's just, I think for me, it was just to fill a gap. There was a gap in that um, I wanted to kind of fill in the space um, where maybe a mixing engineer might or have more flexibility around what I wanted to do than was off the shelf than my that my hands could do at one time um, so if I'm playing a bass line on a, on a keyboard um, then my whole left hand is kind of taken up taken up by that and, and then if I want to use a filter then my whole right hand is taken up by just one tiny movement but if I'm playing it with the gloves I'm also free to kind of dip into other um, dimensions and if I want to get lost in the music and I sometimes perform this song well, actually every single time I perform this song called Hide and Seek and it's a vocal only piece and I can build up the track I can create hundreds of loops um, and I can bring in like deep drones and I can use the jellyfish that you just heard um, and I can use these effects and, and I literally never have to look at the computer and I'm creating a whole massive array of sound out of just my voice Yes, a, a little song called Hide and Seek. Um, yeah. <laughs> no big deal. I think that's the song that you said that your fans would throw tomatoes at you if you did not perform on yeah. your nightly basis, yeah? I think so, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Hide and Seek. And uh, one of the things that I found interesting is you spend so much energy creating this sound that's so personal to you, this and um, and just the right kind of sound, and then you, you perfect it. And Hide and Seek has taken on a life of its own. It has been uh, sampled by Jason Derulo. Uh, it has been sung by innumerable a cappella choirs. It has been, it's just taken off. It's been featured in the OC and different kinds of uh, television programs. How do you feel about the idea of taking something that feels so personal to you and setting it loose into the world and having people make their own versions of it? I absolutely love it. Um to me, I feel like I've got my, you know, nice version of it in the studio and that's how it felt at the time. Um, and actually that song, I almost felt like I was self being self-indulgent um, by having a only a cappella. I didn't think anyone would like it. Um, and even people who came into the studio were like, yeah, it's good, but I think I need some drums. I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> it, it has to be a cappella. Don't you understand? Um, so... Yeah, I wasn't really expecting much of it. I just it just felt like my little guilty pleasure to stick that on the on the record, and then somebody uh, this guy, this woman called Alex Patsavas, Patsavas um, she was the music supervisor for the OC, and she heard the track um, because she'd put another previous one of oh, that I was working on as well earlier. Um, but she decided this was going to be the end of series two. It was like a big moment, got memed to hell, um, and. Uh, and it just ended up in there and it because it was in that space and because people are that's the kind of magic of getting a, a great sync is that um you take people out of their ordinary comfort zone of like oh i don't like that kind of music because it's not the kind of music i like um but when you're watching a film all of a sudden you kind of become more accepting about different styles of music um and that song just like really just flew um with so many people and because actually my name wasn't at the end of it um, everybody did lots of research and because of that journey to me they found other things that I'd done and then I kind of I got quite a lot of fans through that direction but I love 
I love it when a song um, gets sampled and, you know, stretched and slowed down and put into a beat and somebody raps over it. I absolutely love it. Um, I wish it was easier. That's part of the drive of, you know, maybe we're going to talk about it later. Um, the Creative Passport and this thing called Mycelia was to ease that collaboration, um, to allow the song to have all the information you need about it, to to know what somebody could do with it. Because half the time people would sample things and then just be like kind of sneaky about it and not mention who it is that they've sampled because they're terrified mm-hmm. that person's not going to like the idea that they've done it. But I think 99% of the time people love it. They just want to be credited. So let's talk a little bit about Mycelia. Mycelia is your vision for how a performer can create their own digital identity and collaborate. So take us through how Mycelia came into being. And also, I love the story about how you discovered blockchain and blockchain's uh, capacity for supporting some of this. Uh, So take us through the inception of Mycelia and what you hope it becomes. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um almost exactly seven years ago now um I had given birth to my daughter Scout and um I was stressing about the fact that I had to I had just recorded this new track which I really loved it was called Tiny Human it's about Scout um and very precious about it so happy that I actually managed to finish the song even though she was three months old um and with severe colic uh I didn't have a manager. I don't have a manager, actually. Um, And the kind of thought of let's get this track up online with all of its data intact um, and do all the bits that you have to do to get something out there kind of filled me with dread. I was like, if only you could just put everything about a song that you could possibly need to know about that song, somehow like attach it to it, because it would save so much time. You know, the amount of emails that we get, can we please use this in this thing? Can we please um, have the correct spelling for this? Can we, what are the lyrics for this? What is, you know, all the, or what microphone did you use? All these questions that I could just put down in a file and it be accessible to anyone who might ever need to know it because any data that you can't find is a, is a kind of a missed opportunity for the artist. So that's where the idea came from. Um, wouldn't it be nice if this blue sky vision of a music industry th- where all of the data about the song and about the artist were kind of connected via like an umbilical cord um, and that I could just put a piece of music up online and know that when it's up there with all of its data, I'll never have to do anything about it ever again. I can just go back to making a song instead of this endless amount of admin that you have to deal with or chasing money uh, from various different um, sources. So that's where it came from. And then my dear, 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 dear friend, Zoe Keating, who's a brilliant, amazing, talented lady uh, with a son as well. Um, she came over um, to like, you know, meet, meet Scout and I was talking to her about this, you know, I just can't stand the idea of just adding to the problem again, just by putting another piece of music up there and just having all this stress. Um, And she said, have you heard of blockchain? I'm going to go, I'm just about to go to a conference on Necker Island, as she does. um, And I'm going to go and hear a bit more about it. But I think there might be something in this because the idea is there's this like ledger that everybody would uh, be able to access maybe publicly and privately. And you could have all this data kind of connected to a song, wherever it goes, and everyone could access it. And I was like, that sounds wonderful. When's it going to happen? But then I looked around and there was literally nothing happening in music. Um, a few people had talked about it, um, but my brain went on fire. I was just like, this is this is brilliant. And I just read and read and read and read, um, you know, while breastfeeding Scout at three in the morning, uh, all I could about blockchain. And I just knew that there was something in this technology that was going to help 
musicians, uh, you know, kind of break them out of a hundred years of um, basically just being treated really badly. 50% of all our royalties go missing uh, or they go into the pockets of other people because of bad data. So I just thought there's something in this. And then, you know, seven years later, uh, we boiled it down to what we could actually do as the, as an artist. So we've created this digital identity. It's in beta right now and it's called the Creative Passport. Might need a better name because that's kind of what it does rather than maybe a nice brand name. But um, it's really just the functionality of empowering the musician to be able to go in and change data across many different um, services by having a verified um, kind of identity um, and being prepared for Web3, uh, helping us be prepared for that decentralised future space um, and crypto and flow of money. Um, I mean, essentially, it's just a knowledge store of any information that you might want to share about your individual artist self and it's a it's an exciting future when it all gets cleaned up (laughs) and and is your view that the data becomes more artist centric as opposed to song centric yeah that's the i mean yeah i didn't fully continue the thought there but so the streaming services have been able to um you know manifest their services by having a sea of data in in order which to grow from and that is organized song data or as much as it can be but there's no organized artist data and when it does become organized all of that extra contextual information that we can give around the songs or around what the artist does or what gear the artist has or what other musicians they're inspired by um or where in what cafe did they write that song that you so love or what are the correct lyrics um uh or even, you know, what are they inspired by? What books are they reading? All this kind of stuff that it could be a different way to explore a musician on a, on a streaming service. You know, at the moment, you can't really tell who the saxophonist was on a song or who maybe engineered a track. So you could decide that you really love a particular type of violin even and you want to hear all the recordings of just that violin. Like it could get down to that granular one day um, when we just become it just becomes second nature to, to add all the information because there's potentially money in, uh, in the use of that data. And I, I feel like when we get into the flow and it becomes easy and you only put data in once and off it goes every single data point becomes a potential for discovery whereas at the moment we have um you know we put a bunch of basic information the kind of minimal viable data which would be the publisher the record label name of the track name of the key artist and that's it um but if we could add extra information to that there'd be extra data points that people could discover us by um and that is when the magic really happens. You know, all these amazing intersections of possibilities. Right. And your music can be found by other people. People can build on what you've done. People can find the same instrumentation, same partners and collaborators that you did. And so you've described this as a place to get information. There's there's a whole lot of friction on the fact that the data is so bad, the, mm. the data about the singer, the, the performer, the data about the song. And so you've described, I think, an informational repository where you can access a verified imaging heap, you know, with a blue check mark equivalent. Mm-hmm. Um, and what about the songs and the transactions? Is it your vision that there would actually be a bank of your digital assets and that the that the use of those, you'd go into the same uh, bank and use it and then be compensated for it via blockchain uh, technology right away? Um, I don't know exactly how it will work, but I mean, already you can... 
I mean, I, I released the first song to use smart contract on a blockchain, Ethereum, about seven years ago. We're just as a demo, we kind of went, here's a song, anyone who downloads it um, will pay me in crypto. And all of the musicians who are involved will also get in, immediately paid. And we all had our little crypto wallets and you know, it seems like pretty basic. Why doesn't that happen? But in the music industry, that's the exact opposite of what happens because there's all these incumbents along the way. So the possibility is there. Um, but at the moment, we have you know lots of people exploring with NFTs. And I'm excited about that because this is a chance for artists to kind of create, start to develop their own future. So the um, the song that you described that you uh, released via Mycelia was um, Tiny Human. And I'm wondering, what was your experience with that? Did did the did in fact the royalties flow through a little bit more quickly? Was is the metadata associated with that in such a state that it's you know friction free? Uh, was it rejected? I think you I heard you say one time that Napster was the best idea that was killed very quickly because the powers that be didn't want it to be. Um, so I'm wondering about your experience. This isn't um, this isn't just theoretical. You've actually done it, and I'm wondering about. You know, what happened? Well, I mean, we couldn't do that much. Um, most people had no idea what Ethereum was. Nobody had wallets. It was mainly just, you know, 200 developers who had a crypto wallet and could buy the track. And it was a novelty because it was like a thing you could actually buy um, using, using Ether, which at the time, mm. had, I think, had only been launched three, about three weeks before. So it was really an experiment that came out of a hack weekend that I funded just to see who what could ha- what could happen if I presented all of this amount of data including the splits, um, including permissions around if somebody wanted to remix it, the stems, etc. Um, but it wasn't possible to integrate that into a smart contract at the time. Um, so really all it was was a, um, a, a transaction, a programmable transaction around when this is done, send XYZ amounts to XYZ um, uh, wallets. And yeah, that happened instantly. Because we sold 200 copies or so, and they were for a dollar or a pound each um, worth of Ether, which was you know very cheap at the time. But mm. what was nice, uh, it, it was somebody did kind of like, ha-ha, Imogen only made 200 copies of her brand new fantastic idea, whatever. Um, and I was like, that was amazing. We sold 200 copies. I was like super excited. It was a hack. You know, it was super fun. Um, but then what happened is we kind of left it in the wallets, not really thinking about it because it was just 200 quid. So like, it takes, costs more to take it out than to, right. than to leave it in there. So... Um, we we just sat on it and then I got a you know a message through on WhatsApp or whatever just said have you checked your crypto have you checked your your ether and I'm like what what so I looked up and the spike had gone like through the roof and the money it was suddenly worth two hundred thousand pounds um, so I was like frantically like how do I take it out I can't remember my password you know what's my code um, and we could only take out ten grand at a time or something so we couldn't we couldn't get it all out but we did get a bit out and it did it did basically start the creative passport project it got us it got us funded for a bit. <laughs> so we have put together here um, a real confluence of technology and music, first in the song itself and the sounds that you make, second in the blockchain technology for identity resolution. And it's um, hard to get through a podcast on Data Brilliant without also talking about AI. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, lately, um, it seems like there's been a lot of interest in having AIs compose music themselves. Mm. You know, there are people that are trying to say, can you can you tell the difference between the real Bach and the AI Bach, et cetera? 
What are your thoughts around um, AI creating music? Is this a, is this a decidedly human thing that we should be fearful of, or uh, or you know, as a person who dabbles in technology and synthesizers and computers to make music, how do you feel about the AIs helping you out there? I'm all for it um, because anytime I get a new piece of equipment that does a cool thing, it just steps me up. I'm just like, oh, okay, so you do that. Okay, that means I could do this. And I'm going to do this kind of thing that I've never been able to do before because I just didn't think about it like that. So mm. I feel like there's, it's going to really raise the bar uh, for creativity and for humans. It's never going to overtake us. Um, I, don't, I don't feel like that would happen. I think what should happen is we should have a transparency in what is AI and what is human. I would quite like to know if I'm hearing a piece of music, is that, is that an AI or is it is it human or what percentage of it? Mm. So, for example, if you're buying some food at the you know, superstore or whatever, you want to know if it's GM modified. So it would you'd have to give you a stamp to say that so that you know what you're putting inside yourself. Um, and I think the same should happen with um, with with AI and art. So that, you know, like in France, I think you have to put on the front cover if there's a photo that you have to say if it's been photoshopped or not. Um, so you have mm. to kind of own up to that. And I, I would like to see something similar happen. Yeah, and I think this is in keeping with the concept of augmented intelligence that we see in other areas. It's not to um, it's not to take the human jobs. It's to allow us to focus on the things that are more decidedly human yeah. and let the machines do their own thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The human in the loop. Yeah. Right. I think we have – we'll coin a phrase for your AI. We'll call it artificial imaging. AI. Well, actually, I already have yeah. one. Uh, augmented, oh, Im- augmented imaging. It's not actually musical at the moment, but I am gathering a knowledge store of information uh, so that I never have to answer the same question twice. So um, <laughs> basically... Wait, I am found- I actually speaking with you right now or am oh, I speaking with your AI? Or- that'd be telling. I'd have to look at, <laughs> look at the percentages later. Um, yeah, so much fun. So much fun. So, uh, Imogen, I wonder, as we wrap up this conversation, if you could leave us with three thoughts about how data is shaping your world and the greater world around you in, in material ways. Currently, I, I, I basically am just at this kind of frustrating middle spot where you see all this potential and then you have this clunky old infrastructure and then just not meeting at all. Um, and you're getting, I kind of feel like I'm being fed you know, music, ideas, movies that are just in my bubble, my filter bubble. Mm. And I would love to, I would love somebody to develop um, a kind of a, you know, add in the anarchy, like 20%, 30% into my search results. I would love, I would love that to happen. I just think that would help us all not just hear ourselves over and over again, as we discuss things on Twitter and Instagram and wherever, that we, that we bring in the other side um, in a kind of, I don't know, a manageable, soft way that it's not just like, because I feel like everyone has these very polarised opinions. If we could have a, I don't know, some kind of malleable search kind of, um, yeah, adjusting technique that would bring in a little bit of anarchy, uh, a little bit of the outside thinking to yours, that would be healthy for everyone. So I just feel more and more like I'm, I kind of don't go online so much because I've I feel like I'm being fed the bubble. Maybe mm. I just need to use more Tor or something. Um, but it's, uh, anyway, that's Challenge probably not, social not, media the answer, networks. not the answer you wanted. But um, didn't um, have a It one. is your answer. <laughs> and that's all we care about. That's okay. great. Good. So Imogen, how can our listeners find out more about you and your work? 
Um, well, funnily enough, I'm not actually that organised with data myself. Um, ironically, it's like a doctor, <laughs> you know, not looking after himself. Um, but you can go to imageandheap.com and there's a, a bunch of probably quite outdated links on there, um, which will send you to my app. It will send you to the Mimu Gloves Space uh, Creative Passport um, and my own website. It actually is like almost like the beginning of the mycelia vision in the way that it treats data. So you can search for something and then it will find you related information around it and just kind of populate the space that you're looking at. Um, so, yeah, I'll just go to imogenheap.com. That's the best way. Well, Imogen, it's been a real pleasure having you here. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. <laughs> Imogen Heap is a Grammy Award-winning songwriter, producer, and performer. She is the inventor of the Mimu Glove and the driver of the blockchain musical identity platform, Mycelia. Sound is somehow both ubiquitous and personal. And we, by nature, feel the need to build something new and to build on the thoughts and work of others. Thank you, Imogen, for helping us to make our sounds more uniquely ours and for providing a clear roadmap on how best to use technology to build, collaborate, and excel in an increasingly digital and AI-oriented world. Thank you for listening to this episode of Data Brilliant, brought to you by Click and hosted by me, Joe Dos Santos. Think about the importance of having and acting on good data in your life and in your organization to discover how you can solve your most complex data challenges with a real-time active intelligence analytics data pipeline that generates better insights and more value from your data, visit click.com, Q-L-I-K.com.